Welcome back to Yoga Uncensored. Kane and Mark here. And uh, we're talking about yoga studio conduct today. So this is a topic coming from two yoga teachers. We've both been teaching for a long time. And these are topics that are a little charged, I think, for both of us. At least I'll speak for myself. There may be some charge around it. So when we talk about it, it might come off a little intense or at times judgmental. There might be some anger around it because I haven't really gone to therapy around all these topics yet. So there, <laughs> there might be a little bit of unresolved feelings around it. And I just want to uh, mention that and warn people and own that before we get into the topics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when we talk about the the conduct of yoga students and teachers in the studio um, both of us have spent a considerable amount of time immersed in the in the asian traditions of these different wisdom practices and there's certain unspoken rules of conduct that happen in those spaces and that we adhere to when we're with our teachers in those spaces and we often don't see those things happening in modern yoga schools and fair enough it's not necessarily a part of our culture but still it triggers a lot of kind of feelings of disrespect and feelings of kind of missing out on opportunities that might otherwise be there. So we're going to dive into this topic today and hopefully try to place it into context for the listeners. And basically, like always, what we're trying to do here is to create a conversation and to do that in a way that um, to take away the shackles of needing to tiptoe around topics and to be uncensored about it is our way of making a conversation comfortable for anybody to join it and, and make it kind of an open forum to talk about these things in a way that's just raw and real. So um, let's just start with the idea of entering a yoga studio as kind of a metaphor for for bridging this, this connection between the outer world and what happens in a yoga studio or a meditation space. Mm. So um, maybe we'll just start with saying sort of like, why do we, why do we draw a division between a yoga space and the rest of the world? Like why make that distinction? why take our shoes off and why sort of behave any differently and i think that there's at the very simplest level there's a there's a way of creating um common ground for everybody so one of the reasons for taking off our shoes and entering into the threshold of the yoga room without shoes on one is for cleanliness and kind of like keeping the quote red dust of the world outside of the yoga studio but it's also so like we're all standing literally on the same earth and everybody walks in different shoes, both literally and figuratively in their life mm -hmm. outside of the studio. But in the studio, we all walk on the same ground and we feel the earth with our feet. And there's a sense of kind of humbling ourselves and leaving our, our conventional lives as different people outside of the studio and entering into a space of sangha or spiritual community with each other. And in that space, we're all rendered equal on a certain, in a certain level. Um, so the whole point is to be able to feel some personal relationship to that, not to sort of do it like you could mindlessly take your shoes off as you enter the yoga studio, or you could mindfully remove your shoes and think I'm leaving my job, my outside world here with my shoes and I'm leaving it there and I'm entering into this door into the yoga studio with the mindfulness that I'm coming here to practice with my fellow seekers 
and we're sharing this hour and a half together for a very specific and very important reason. Mm. And just having that moment of mindfulness of, re of removing the shoes kind of like creates a different context for the yeah. yoga practice. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about this a little while ago and um, you were also mentioning how you can't help yourself from bowing before you enter the room too. And I really, really like that. And I used to do that a lot mm. and actually made me really sad when you said that because I haven't been doing it for quite a while now. Mm. And I find that to be really unfortunate for me because not because I have to, right? There's no requirement around any of this stuff. It's like I get to because, you know, a lot of times when we go to yoga class uh, or to a yoga practice, we're again, have a very consumerist attitude. Like I'm going to go and get something mm. given to me. I'm paying this money. Someone's going to give me an experience or give me a service. Like I'm going to get a, go get a massage or I'm going to the spa or something like that. You know, and I think we come in with this attitude of entitlement, which understandable, but I think it's unfortunate if that's all we're coming in with. Um, when we, when I walk into a space, when I take my shoes off consciously with awareness, mindfulness, and I bow, I'm making the personal effort to curate that experience for myself. You know what I mean? I'm setting the tone for that experience. It's like uh, uh, the idea of creating sacred space or like a magical space. Right? And it's all about intention right? and mindfulness. So when I set that intention and I take action based on that intention, I empower that intention. Right? So when I walk into the yoga room, it's not just like any old room that I'm going to plop my mat down and just exercise in. It's like, no, this is a special place where I come, come to be mindful, to relax, to get into my body, to explore and deepen. And so that ritual allows me to get into that mind frame so that I can derive even more benefit from my time and practicing in that space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the bowing thing is something that we were talking about before we started recording. It's like I, I learned it when I was a kid because I would go to Japanese cultural center to study judo and there would be other cultural events there, whether it was dancing or singing or, or whatever. But whenever you enter into that space, you bow to the spaciousness of the room. The fact that the room is open and empty is what enables us to practice our meditation and our, and our judo. So it, it just totally made sense to me like in a sense you're bowing to the openness and I think that that is is a very simple way that needs to be made personal if somebody takes that practice on it needs to come from like you said from a personal decision mm -hmm. to 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 take command of your experience because I mean we all have we all have our mind stream and let's face it you you drive your car or ride your bike or you get yourself to the yoga studio and there are probably a lot of other things on your mind and fair enough, but how can you get the most out of that hour and a half? One way is by taking command of your experience, and another way is by gaining momentum from everybody else who's in that space, who also has a similar intent, and then the teacher shows up and they conduct and lead the experience. And when those three things come together, individual intent, the communal vibration, and then a good teacher, in an hour and a half, worlds can change. Right. So there's one there's one aspect of it that, in a sense, you're taking command of your experience and doing it for yourself. The second level is to do it for everyone else. And the third level is to do it for the teacher. Mm. Right. Mm. So when we enter the yoga space, whether you choose to bow or not, or just mentally, you could bow. When you walk through the threshold means the square that separates the yoga room from everything else. When you walk through that space to have the sense that you're stepping into a different dimension and your conduct then becomes 
one-pointed in terms of I'm here to do yoga and everything that supports that it comes with you and everything that doesn't support that is left with the shoes mm. and to me this is like a three-pronged expression of respect and and kind of devotion in a sense I mean the way I feel it when I bow personally and it's not like I make a large bow when I walk into a space it's very small and maybe most people don't even notice it but I I'm bowing in devotion to the space Mm-hmm. as shunyata, as openness, as the, as the potentiality. And I'm feeling some level of connectivity in my heart to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that I can get from that an inspiration to be my best. Usually I'm coming into the space as a teacher these days right. and I'm performing a role. So whether you're a teacher or a student, it's really kind of the same idea of bowing to the highest potential that can happen during this class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think another aspect of that is that it all happens in silence, like taking off our shoes outside the studio to be quiet. It's not being quiet because there's some external, you know, um, hierarchy of quietness. It's because when we're quiet, we're actually being more mindful of our action. The simple movement of taking my shoes out of my feet out of my shoes and setting them down quietly forces me to have to be present with that moment mm-hmm. and walking in quietly into the space and being quiet and mindful of everybody. It helps to create a vibe and that vibe is magnetic in the studio when everybody does it mm-hmm. and it's powerful. Those yeah. little things create a lot of potency in a studio. And if that happens day after day, week after week, month after month, a studio or a dojo develops a kind of chi by itself that will feed the students. Mm-hmm. Totally. It, and when you say slowing down to cultivate that, that sort of focus or attentiveness, I really like that because sometimes we forget that, right? Especially in the West, we're so loud and we move <laughs> so fast and we're doing so many things. That practice of slowing down to not make sound requires effort. It makes us slow down, you know, it makes us pay attention to what we're doing and the impact of what we do. And I think that's the big one too, is that in the West, there's such a tendency towards self-absorption, right? We're always in our own story, in our world and running around taking care of, you know, whatever we need to do. And when we walk into that space, like you said, we're creating this collective experience, right? Even though we're on our own yoga mat, there's something uniquely different about practicing on your yoga mat by yourself at your house. And when you come to a space with a teacher and with other practitioners and the collective energy, I really like that you mentioned that the collective energy that we create together. And so, there's something magical about harmonizing with that space, you know, which involves being aware of each other mm. and working together. And part of that means to be respectful and aware of each other and to, to come with respect, which means regard, really. The word respect to me means I care about you. And so I share and extend my regard through acts of respect. Right? So if there's another class going on, even if I'm not in that class, I still care about those people who are having that experience because another day that's me, you know, with other people waiting outside and I'm not going to make a huge scene or start laughing really loud because I don't know what they're doing. They might be meditating. They might be in Shavasana. And I'm not sure if you've ever been in class when you're trying to meditate and people are really loud outside or (laughs) screaming. It's really annoying. You know, it's super hard because (laughs) yeah, it's actually not in harmony, right? Because you're, you're, your process there and that practice is to, to, to create calmness or silence so you can have a deeper, more subtle experience. And when there's really loud sound, you, you're actually stealing that attention from people in a sense. Mm-hmm. And granted, the practitioner can use that as a way of galvanizing their concentration, but still it is disruptive, you know? So like if you traditionally went to a Zendo and if you're like 
talking or screaming out loud, the teacher will probably come in and, you know, <laughs> whack you, <laughs> whack you, and kick you out to to never allow you back or something, right? But we're so lenient in the West, and so people never really learn. Okay, actually, you doing that has a huge impact. Like, I'm in class sometimes with thirty people, and we're sitting and meditating, and there's people laughing and screaming and like just creating a, a ruckus outside, and it's disturbing every single one of those people's meditations and making it that much more difficult for them to practice.、Mm. And that's really disharmonious, you know. And it's very not mindful, right? Right. So. Um, yeah, so I mean that's one of the things that's really challenging for me and upsetting, but the benefit of that for me is like I firsthand know what that experience is like now. <laughs> so when I'm outside of a class, I try to be really aware, and if I need to talk, I'll whisper,、mm-hmm. you know, and just keep an awareness. And and when you're in community, that awareness of each other is is really important, and it's a spiritual practice, and it's a way of embodying the the higher principles or virtues of yoga in your conduct in your life, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that ties in with the idea of sangha or kula. I mean, even if you're not in that class, I mean, often we teach in studios where there are multiple rooms. So you know, if it's a smaller studio with only one room, when you exit the studio, you're the only people in the studio. But in larger studios, quite often classes are exiting. You know, not on the same hour. So one class is in session, and another class is letting out. But there's a cool practice of trying to feel everyone who's in the sphere of the studio as your family, as your yoga family, and and thinking of yourself in their position, or thinking of them as an extension of you, and like that our conduct collectively helps create an environment that enables the practice to go deeper for everyone. And it's challenging because you get out of yoga class and it's a great class, and people want to then they've been quiet and haven't talked. So then, if there's thirty of them, they want to socialize because part of their connection is having a social connection. And as teachers, we get that. But how can it be done in a way that's really mindful and conducive to everyone staying in that space of being contemplative? Right? A yoga studio is different from a gym or different from a a coffee shop or something. Like, it, of course, yoga studios are social connecting places, but it's mainly a place of contemplative practice. And I think that's that's been a difficult thing for because yoga studios have entered the mainstream kind of through the channel of exercise culture. Our main example of exercise culture meeting places are gyms, and so when we're talking about yoga studio conduct, we don't have a lot of reference points culturally, unless individuals have practiced in places that are you know more influenced by contemplative wisdom traditions.、Mm-hmm. So the zendo is a good example. When when I lived in India, both the yoga space and the Indian dance space were both treated with the exact same respect. So the dancers would enter the space, they would do what's called bumi pranam. They would bow literally to forehead to the earth, all the way to the ground, and then back up and then bow to the space.、So、they would acknowledge the earth and the space.、Mm, and now they would enter the space, having done something very physical and ritualistic, to determine that now they're going to dance. And of course, they left their shoes outside the dance space. And I and I watched that, and I thought, I felt sad because I wished that we had a commonly agreed ritual in yoga studios in the West, where everybody did some movement that's、mm-hmm. very physical and tangible as they entered、yeah. to to make it real. And you know, and, and we just don't. I mean, maybe collectively we could start to establish establish that. But as it stands now, I think we need to do it mentally. So we started with shoes. We talked about entering the studio space quietly.、Um, you had a great term that I want to hear you talk about: mat whipping. How do you deal with your <laughs> yoga mat mindfully? Okay, there's a couple things. 
for me. And it's like, it's interesting as map technology has evolved, you know, I'm sure they didn't have to deal with this, like, you know, hundreds of years ago or whatever, but, um, hmm, how do I say this nicely? <laughs> okay, so first of all, I mean, people being coming into class, right? We want to be mindful as we come into class. And then depending on what's happening in the room, to be sensitive or aware, you know, if people are meditating already, even when you come early, like, I think minimizing sound is a good thing. So like, if you have Velcro mat straps, take the Velcro off if you can, you know, if you can, outside. So you're not walking in, shh, you know? Especially if you're yeah. late. <laughs> and then, especially if you're late. Especially if you're late. Please. You know, we're already meditating or relaxing or whatever, right? And then the the, the map, you go, whoosh, right? Like when they unroll the map, it goes, whoosh. And then like everyone's like, whoa. Like even if it's like, even if we haven't started class, when people do that, it's really shocking. The technical term for that, by the way, is called mat whipping. That's uh, <laughs> coined by Mark Tanaka. <laughs> mat whipping. No mat whipping. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, you know, your cell phones, like, it's not good enough to put it on vibrate. It's just not okay. It's, you don't do that. Like, turn it off completely. Like, no sound, no alarms, make sure, and then put it outside if you can. You know, we all forget sometimes, we all make mistakes, it's fine. But if you can, don't put it on vibrate, like, turn it off. Right. Not that we have a problem with vibrators, just don't bring them to the other <laughs> studio. Can't. <laughs> I mean, I think it all boils down to, we, we talk about these three different levels of respect. And I mean, it, mindfulness is definitely the umbrella topic here that every one of these things requires us to be mindful of actually what we're doing, but also what we're thinking. And of course, what we're saying as students, we're not usually voicing too much in a yoga class, but we want to be mindful of our mind. So maybe we could bring it down to respect, respect of self, respect of others and respect of the teachers and kind of break down how we might think about those three things. So all the stuff we've talked about so far has the element of respect for self and others seems really obvious. Entering the space, having some moment where you pause, enter the space with kind of reverence. That's both for yourself and for others. Um, but what about respect toward the teacher? What about how any of this ties into the relationship between the student and the teacher and actually what's happening inside of that dynamic because now I think we're treading on ground that's even more unfamiliar for most of us who mm. were enculturated in the West. So yeah, that's a really difficult topic to talk about because, you know, uh, first of all, we're teachers, you know, and I'm, a, I'm still an active yoga teacher these days. So I'm not necessarily saying, I just want to preface what we're about to talk about by saying that no one's required to do any of these things, right? It's not like, oh, if you don't do these things, I'm going to be mad at you and not like you. And it's not like that at all, actually. Um, and it's more of an invitation and, and, and an opportunity to, to explore different ways of relating in the context between yoga student and yoga teacher. And, and it's, some teachers might not even want this at all, I think, right? It depends on the person. But again, as a student, there's an opportunity, I think, when we work with a yoga teacher, right? Depending on what kind of yoga teacher they are too, especially teachers who are teaching uh, a really spiritual yoga. I think there's value in, in coming into the relationship as a student with a lot of respect. You know, I know for Kane, I mean, for you, you've, we've talked about it a little bit, but you've had uh, a lot of respect for your teachers mm. and you've taken, um, a lot upon yourself to 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 do things in relationship 
with your teachers in a really conscious way. Mm. And I thought some of those things were really beautiful, at least for me, because I am Asian and I can understand it from a cultural perspective. And the biggest thing is that it, it just feels good to me because when I value a teacher, I get have an opportunity of valuing someone who is giving me something important, you know? So I think when you value a teacher or you value the teachings, you almost get more out of it, I think. I think that's, that's kind of how I see it. But like, yeah, I'd love to, for you to share like some of the things that you were sharing about how you uh, relate to your teachers. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you nailed the central point is like, it's, it's not about doing something out of obligation. It's about what you get out of conducting yourself in a certain way. And there's something else that happens when we, when we do that. So for me, I mean, it's a really emotional thing for me and a really personal and private thing for me. When I talk about my teachers, I feel like my heart just swells up and I have so much gratitude, like I can barely contain it. Mm. So for me, it's about just the simple fact that my teachers, and then when I say that I'm directly connected to their teachers because they learned things from their teachers that they passed on to me, is that the things I received from them changed my life. Mm -hmm. Like they enabled me to heal myself from major injuries, heal myself from really debilitating health conditions, to transform the way my mind functions so that I could see clearly how reality functions in my own experience. And for them to make that bridge from theory and, and some tradition, whether it's, you know, from the Indian yogic tradition or the Taoist Qigong tradition or um, Buddhist Vajrayana tradition, to be able to, to transfer that tradition of wisdom into something that I could understand in my own language. I don't speak Tibetan, I don't speak Mandarin, and I don't read Sanskrit and I don't speak Hindi. So I know a little enough of each of those languages to get key terms that fills in some understanding, but I can't converse with my teachers in those languages. They were able to transmit to me in my own language. So that's already a huge thing. They were able to enter my mind stream and help me understand things that change the very basis of how I live my life for the better, for the huge better. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, I try really hard to conduct myself in a way around them that my body and my speech and my mind express gratitude and openness and deep respect for what they've given me. Mm -hmm. And some tangible ways I do that are I, I never, if I'm struggling with something in my own mind, something petty or whatever, I never introduce that into the space with my teacher. Like mm -hmm. I always respect my teacher's mind stream. Mm. Means I never ask them things that are like that I could figure out myself or mm. things that are not significant to my relationship with them in the context, right? I don't burden their mind stream with unnecessary things. So I'm aware of how I talk with them. Mm. I'm aware of my position of my body in relationship to my teacher. I'll never sit on my teacher's chair. Mm. I'll never touch their meditation cushion. I'll never touch their yoga mat unless they invite me onto their mat to demonstrate something or only by invitation. So whatever they use for their practice, I never would touch anything without being invited to or asked to or told to touch it for some reason. Um, if I'm walking with my teacher, I'll never, I'll do my best to not step on their shadow. I, I won't say never because I'm not mindful 100% of the time. Mm. But in being mindful, I'll walk in, in such a way that I don't step on their shadow. Um, 
if I'm at a having a meal with my teacher, I'll wait for them to eat first or make sure that they have their food or tea first and kind of take cue off of them. Mm-hmm. And none of this has any value for the teacher. Like honestly, most of my teachers probably wouldn't care. Like they wouldn't take offense. Mm-hmm. But the value is that I get something really powerful out of that because because I put that on myself, it forces me to be ever more vigilant and mindful in their presence and sustain a feeling of devotion. Mm -hmm. And I'm not feeling any less than my teacher. I'm not like bowing down to them or worshiping them as if they're better than me as a human being or as a being in general. Mm -hmm. But I'm recognizing that they have experience that is profound in the field that I'm growing within and their experience and relationship to me is helping me grow. Mm-hmm. And I can't put a value on that. Like I still pay them 1200 bucks for the for the weekend workshop or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't think if I'm paying them that they have to behave a certain way according to my preferences. Right. You know, I, I assume I'm going to get something valuable, mm-hmm. but really it's based on my openness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like a business transaction in my mind. It's a mm-hmm. heart transaction. So, and, I'm, and I should say, you know, that I'm choosing teachers that I have already ascertained have a deep level of understanding and I have a deep respect for and so in a sense I already know that there's a lot of value I'm going to receive it's not like Mm -hmm. I sort of pay 1200 bucks to any old person but once I've made that decision that person has my they have my heart they have my devotion and Mm -hmm. and out of that I derive a great amount of strength like it doesn't weaken me Mm -hmm. it weakens the part of me that tends to be petty and self-absorbed and narcissistic and egotistical mm-hmm. and it actually subdues that part of me yeah. and the teacher is not doing anything intentional to subdue that in me it gets subdued when i practice devotion right that's beautiful i like that yeah because I, I think i've heard this and, and it's i i really understand what you're saying there on a visceral level from my own experience because i get i could actually get pleasure out of serving beings that I respect, that give me a lot. I have a lot of gratitude for them and feeling that gratitude, feeling that respect for another being is like nothing like it. You know, it's actually really, it's almost like a need that I have as a human being to have people in my life that I respect, that I can look up to, that are like mentors or that are, you know, uh, just benefactors, you know, that I can feel a lot of love and appreciation for. That's just nourishing. I feel supported in life when I have people like that in my life, you know, and all I want to do is treat them well. And you know, earlier on, you said something beautiful, and it's very like Confucius, Confucius but like it, you're saying how you know the, your parents and your teacher are the two beings you can never repay, mm. right? Yeah, it's like you can never repay them for what they have given you, or because like the parents give you your body and your whole life, and if also if they brought you up and taken care of you for years, I mean, God, that's a lot of energy and effort, right? And then the teacher because they've given you something that's changing your life, that if you didn't run into them, if they didn't make the effort to learn, you know, English and come to America or something or take the time to really break down and understand it and, and gain that skill that they would have never, you know, given you that information if they haven't put that effort in. And if you never got that information, you wouldn't be who you are today. Right? Exactly. Because if you really think about, I mean, when you really meet a, a true teacher, a true yoga teacher or a qigong master or like a, a spiritual teacher and how much, how transformational the, the education is and it's it's significant and i and i'm you were earlier if, if it's okay for you for me to mention like yeah. getting a little worked up because <laughs> you're talking about being in a yoga center or something and people complaining about the temperature or something like that and yeah i mean yeah i get 
And then I get really annoyed about some of this pettiness in yoga studios. I mean, mm-hmm. I often will teach something in a class that like one technique, you know, like I'll teach Agni Sada Kriya, you know, just mm-hmm. moving the navel in and out, massaging the intestines. I traveled to Nepal and India to learn how to do that in a way that I felt like I could really understand it and teach it to people. Mm-hmm. I got parasites. I got like, I, you know, I mean, there were so many things I had to go through to get that and find the teacher and deal with the language barrier and deal with the heat and stay in really uncomfortable situations. And I'm not complaining, saying that everyone should have to go through that. I'm just saying that there, when you get something from a teacher, usually if it's really valuable, that teacher has gone through a lot either to get that transmission of that teaching or to distill it and work with it such that they could actually convey it to you in your language in a place that is relatively comfortable. So if you're taking that context of conduct inside yoga space, it's not relevant to always think that you have to be comfortable. Right? If, if like the temperature in the yoga studio is like a little too cold or a little too warm or the fans are on, the fans are off, or the windows are closed or the windows are open, there's no way for the yoga teacher to make everybody happy. And so many times in yoga classes, I've had people walk out of classes, mm-hmm. mainly in the warm months, because I wouldn't turn on the ceiling fans. We're in the middle of a deep practice. Everybody's, you know, exterior is open, their pores are open, their skin is open, and they're starting to hit that place of getting uncomfortable. And they, a few people will ask me to turn on the ceiling fans like high so that the, mm-hmm. so that we could get cooled down. And it's like, from everything I've learned, that's not a good idea right now. Mm-hmm. So our chief field is open. So be with the discomfort. And like I've had students leave their classroom because I wouldn't adjust the temperature to their liking. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just in the world that I live in, in terms of my teachers, I would never be allowed to study with my teacher if I had that kind of like attitude. Right. It's like you, the little uncomfortable aspect we have to deal with to get yoga teachings is just part of the deal. So long as your teacher's not being mean to you or something. So I think part of the conduct in the studio is to like take accountability for our own experience and we might have to endure a little bit of discomfort, but to let that crack our heart open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's yeah. take a short break and we'll be back. You're listening to Yoga Uncensored. A voice for free thinkers, urban mystics, and nonconformists with Kane Carroll and Mark Tanaka. For more information about workshops, classes, and one-on-one sessions with Kane and Mark, please go to their websites at kanecarroll.com or marktanakayoga.com. All right, so we're back, Yoga Uncensored. We're talking about yoga studio conduct, and currently it's extending into the whole idea of teacher-student relationships and extending awareness and respect into the relationship between the teacher and the student. Um, a moment ago, you were talking about uh, how much time and energy you had spent to sort of put together this information and, and to teach it. And that's something that's very important to me that I don't necessarily, I mean, I guess sometimes I talk about it, but you know, I don't always tell my students what I went through to get the information that I have or, or how long that I've been spending time, you know, cultivating something before I teach it to someone or, or how dear something is to me, you know, like, I don't know. I think I could probably maybe speak for you too, but some of these practices I pursued and researched and, you know, had to go to random places and 
find them and have someone teach it to me and then practice it and work it and really try to, like you said, understand and translate it so people can understand it. And they're dear to me, you know, some of these practices. Like, there's certain things I actually didn't teach for a really, really long time because they were so important to me that I held it like the most, one of the most important things to me in my life. And I just didn't even want to share it. You know, that's how I felt about it. Like a gem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like a precious gem. And I remember in certain circumstances, when I would share it or something, people would just look at me weird or like walk out of the room or it, it would be really hurtful, you know? And a lot of times, again, us yoga teachers don't get paid that much. So, you know, when we're getting maybe not paid that much or making that much money, you know, we're just barely getting by. And then we're walking in to this room and pouring our heart out and sharing something that's very precious to us. And when there's no respect extended back, that could be really painful. Mm. Right? Yeah. So that feeling of like, there's when you, you know, you talk about that thing as like the gem, mm -hmm. like there's this thing that took years to develop. And then it, if it's offered, but not received, mm -hmm. it like falls to the floor or something. And I mean, I think this is something that doesn't have a lot of context in Western culture because we don't have this idea of transmission. We have this idea of, of getting information. Like we all grew up in the academic school system where it's about the teacher has the information. They give you the information and then you have to try to figure out what it is, what part of it is the most important that you'll be tested on. But it's about getting the information and then displaying your, you know, that you have the information in an exam. But that's very different than the tradition that is there in, in wisdom systems. There's this notion of transmission and transmission happens when the teacher feels that something is really valuable and they offer it and the student opens not just to receive the information, but to receive the heart of the practice that's being transmitted through the teacher's experience. And so when you said, you know, there are certain practices that you cultivated for years before you taught them, the moment you actually teach that thing, there's something being offered that is infused with your actual blood, sweat and tears. And I mean, people should know that it's like yoga teachers don't learn stuff and then master it like the next week. A lot of times, I and mean, we've talked about it before, traditional practices we've both learned from our teachers. We maybe worked with them for years and then realize it's not working like in our we're not getting the result that you're supposed mm -hmm. to get. So then we have to alter or change or, or go deeper or something. And so there's a lot of trial and error and a lot of being really honest with ourselves. And once something seems to really work and then it gets offered with all of this personal kind of charge to it, mm -hmm. that's where the transmission happens. And I think this is one of the things that really gets missed when we think yoga techniques can be thrown around. Someone finishes a 200 hour teacher training program and think they can just say all of the techniques and actually transmission will be completed. Usually it doesn't happen until a person has worked with practices, mm -hmm. you know, for a long time. And so as for students, I think what and I think, I know I speak for both of us, but I think I speak for a lot of our colleagues as yoga teachers, that when a teacher offers something, as students, when we open our heart and practice the devotional aspect, that's when there's a link up and we actually don't just receive information or techniques, but we receive visceral energetic understanding yeah. that almost bypasses our frontal brain intellect aspect yeah. and goes deep into our body. And then we find ourselves actually able to embody those techniques in our practice. And that's a freaking gift from the teacher. And so, I mean, one of the things I learned really early on from my teachers and never taught me this, it was never spoken, but I learned it through transmission is if you want to learn the real juicy stuff from your teacher, 
You have to open yourself and empty your cup and go to non-knowing and become a beginner. And when you do that, you'll get all this other stuff that the teacher never will say because that's mm -hmm. only for the people who are paying attention. Right. And like I learned so many things from being able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's uh it's just something that makes a heart connection between a teacher and a student and creates a deep level of shared compassion mm -hmm. and creates that kind of unification and connection that I mean teachers sometimes can come off like you know, maybe too cool for school or whatever, you know, but it's like deep in the heart of every teacher I know who's my friend and colleague, they want connection with the students. They want to feel yeah. an, a mutual respect and a mutual love. And they really do want to see people thrive yeah. and they want to see the teachings passed on and they want to see beings benefited by the teachings. But often students block that transmission by either not paying attention to their heart or expecting to be handed everything for free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we had talked about this earlier too, but like the idea of w when you walk into a, unfortunately, and I don't blame people, but unfortunately, because of our cultural context, we walk into a yoga studio as if we're buying another service, like we would buy like a piece of bread or, you know, buy like whatever we buy, you know, in a pedicure. store. Yeah, yeah. or service. Like, yeah. yeah, so we, we expect a certain service. So we, I pay this amount of money, I'm supposed to get this, so just give it to me. And there's a certain amount of entitlement that's not conscious that we can walk into a class with. Mm -hmm. And so then we miss out on a lot when we approach things that way, right? Like, oh, you need to do this for me this way. It needs to be done this way. I'm the consumer. You need to serve me, right? And uh, in a teacher-student relationship, especially with this type of art, that kind of attitude actually is detrimental. Mm -hmm. And it prevents you from going into a state that Cain had just shared beautifully of being open and humble, like open cup, right? Empty cup of like putting aside what you think, like when you walk into a yoga center, you even if you've done yoga a lot, if you're going to a new teacher's class, go as if you don't know anything. Absolutely. Because otherwise you may think you understand stuff because you did whatever and you're gonna miss out on everything that person actually has to offer that you have no idea who you're dealing with at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, I wanna share a quick story about yeah. this. So I got invited as a guest teacher a few months back to teach a, a class and I'll, I'll kind of take it a little bit out of context because I want to like point names, but <laughs> essentially it was out of the yoga world. It was in a different field of highly trained professionals in this particular field. And one of the people, and it was a large group, like 50 to 70 people in a big space. And one of the people in this large group was a yoga teacher. And what I was there to teach was a blend of yogic and qigong type of teachings. We didn't have mats and we didn't do yoga postures per se, but the person in the room who was most resistant and who was not following directions and who was expressing their autonomy and, and clearly showing, they were trying to show the teacher that they know better than the teacher because <laughs> they were a yoga teacher mm -hmm. was the yoga teacher. Right. And, and, I, and I've seen that before and I just rolled with it. And I didn't call that person out because it wasn't my place to do so. If it were my class, I would have called them out on that. But later, the person who brought me to teach this course, who was all of their teacher in this particular field, mm -hmm. gave me a, a long apology about that because they felt, and this person is classically trained 
in their field in the mm-hmm. old world Right. And they were like, if that had happened, you know, in, in my like reality where I learned my art, that person would have been like scolded, like in front of everybody and embarrassed. And I was like, well, that's what would have happened if that person did that in my world too. <laughs> but it's not my place to do that. But I just thought it was so interesting. That person was sort of interpreting that they don't have anything to learn because they're already a yoga teacher. Right. And to me, it just it, it that was like the classic example of the full cup phenomenon. She received no transmission from me. Mm-hmm. It was just falling to the floor, right? Right. And so it doesn't matter how quote advanced we get or whatever. When I go see my teachers, I'm a total beginner. You know, and I'm like it's a very different space than people see me in when I teach. It's just like I become like a child, like a baby. I want to absorb as much as possible because I only get to see them for a short amount of time. Right. And so it's it's really important for me that that yoga students understand this is not a, a vertical arrangement where the teacher is above the student at all. It's not like that at all. You're not bowing down to, mm-hmm. to teachers at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. It's about opening and receiving on a horizontal plane the diverse experiences right. and, and 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 the, the and the roles could change you know in the following hour like if i do a, a trade with someone and they want to learn yoga they're the empty cup and if they're going to teach me singing now mm-hmm. i'm the empty cup mm-hmm. and it's like whoever's in the teacher role gets to transmit and whoever's in the student role gets to receive mm-hmm. so if we can learn how to be fluid in our in our expression of devotion and respect and not put ourselves below anybody then we start to learn the yogic art of receptivity mm-hmm. and that is like that is a gem in and of itself because you could get transmission from a kid on a school field i get mm-hmm. transmission from the checkout girl at whole foods <laughs> all the time you know just mm-hmm. a moment of of learning something about my humanity if i'm open yeah and so in a sense and then i'll shut up about this topic is something really dear to my heart it's like yeah. the whole component of bhakti and how to express devotion in a way that's authentic and not just bowing down to everything as an externalized ritual but to bow to bow with everything as an expression of mutual respect and love is to think of everything as your teacher and so in my heart of hearts i don't share this with too many people but it's one of my personal ways of relating to ishta devata to relating to my personal relationship with divinity the way I do that is to see everything as my guru, everything as my teacher, constantly trying to understand what the lesson is and how I can grow from every interaction. And so I see all my students as my guru also. And for me, that really helps me stay on point mm-hmm. and it keeps my heart open. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, that's, yeah, that's great because I think it just ties back into the idea of conduct, right? I mean, we're getting really subtle and in a really beautiful, refined way. Um, here, when, you, when I hear you say that, that's how, that's how I feel. But uh, it is about, okay, when you walk into this practice of yoga or meditation or qigong or whatever, how do, what, what do we bring as practitioners, as teachers? How do we enter the space? And in, to the level of like attitude, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, maybe we can do all the external things right. But our inner attitude, there's some work needing to be done. And I've just, I've definitely been that person, you know, that you, that you point out in terms of like, oh, doing something different or like thinking I know better or like going to someone's class and just, be, just, I could, 
it's so intense, you know, when my arrogance comes up mm. internally and I have to spend the whole hour and a half watching my arrogant mind and my <laughs> attitude and my defensiveness and my know it allness And it's really painful, you know? So that's it, funny. It, yeah, it's not just, like, yeah. I definitely experienced it too. I'm not saying like, oh, I'm beyond this by any means. I totally have that experience. I think it's hard for us, teacher, mm-hmm. for teachers to also be students. Yeah, 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 I guess maybe I'm talking a little too laissez-faire about it. It's like, it is a difficult thing. Like the more you know, the harder it is to let go in a way, mm-hmm. but the more necessary it is. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm so impressed when I meet teachers or masters that are really humble, like truly humble, like truly open. And, you know, I'll talk with them and I'm talking to a senior instructor who's been doing it like 10, 20, 30 years longer than me. You know, and, and again, in Asian cultures, that ma- that means something, you know, like senior students or senior teachers, even people who are older than me. Like if I see a, a practitioner or a teacher who's older than me, like there's a certain amount of respect that I give them immediately. And I'm open years because I want to receive their wisdom, you know. And I remember uh, we were talking about our common teacher, Das. We had a, me and Kane had a teacher in Hawaii. That's where we met, uh, like what, 20, 20, 20 years, years ago. Yeah. And this guy was amazing. I mean, he had his quirks. He wasn't perfect. But he was amazing. And we were talking about how whenever we would go to his class, like our eyes were just glued <laughs> to him and his every subtle movement and breath and intonation because he didn't actually give really specific teachings. Like he would just do it and we had to just follow him and watch it and pick it up. Yeah. And I wonder if I'm actually doing a disservice to my students because I'm giving them so much information so they don't have to work at all. Where, you know, when we worked with Das, he didn't teach us all the details, so we had to pay more attention to pick up what was going on. And it really trained me to, to um, pay attention and really get the transmission that he was giving on a more visceral level. Yeah, I, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. in ter- One, in terms of just how unique that experience was, learning yoga that way. I mean, just to back up and give people a little context. I mean, I know we've talked about it in other episodes, but when Mark and I first met, we were both living in Hawaii. We were studying with this teacher who taught outdoors. There was no charge for the class. You could give donation. Class was usually three hours long at sunset in a park in in Hawaii. And there was very little verbal instruction, really no alignment cues at all. There would be some instructions in terms of maybe how to do mudras or an aspect, but all of it was like you learn by watching and doing. And it was quite advanced and very nuanced type of physical yogic practice. And so, yeah, it was like a training ground for us to learn to pay attention to nuances. And in a sense, it was like forced transmission. (laughs) I mean, by watching someone breathe and watching them move and watching how they make transitions, one of the big things that I learned from Das was how he transitioned from poses to poses. And it was like, it was obvious that there's no such thing as a yoga pose separate from the transition. Like he always moved between poses as another pose. And it was like the whole thing is a dance. And so there's no space for your mind to try to put everything in little boxes. And so as yoga students, I think that that, that kind of trust and deep body-mind connection with the teacher and with the other students creates a different environment for learning. And that's a really big thing that is different from academic classroom. It's just got a different feel and it has a different intention. When we're studying yoga stuff, the intention is not to to learn information and then to, to give it back to the teacher in the form of an exam. The point is to learn information 
and incorporate it into our being nice. such that it functions in a positive way that creates possibility for transformation. Mm -hmm. um, and in a sense, I mean, again, this is like, there's no, there's no way to just sort of go from 12 or 15 or 20 years of academic learning and immediately understand yogic learning. Like we, it takes a little while to understand this. Um, but I never heard anyone talk about it in a yoga studio. I haven't never, besides you and I talking, I never have heard this conversation come up in the yoga world. And so I think there needs to be a lot more discussion about the difference between yogic learning and academic learning. Right, right. Uh, when it, it's a part of conduct, too, in a sense of like, it's something you do in a stu you know, studio in a learning context. Like, because we're talking about, okay, from, from beginning of, of walking in and entering the space with your, you know, putting your shoes away and bowing in or with some regard or respect for the people in the room as an entry point all the way to what we're talking about, which is paying close attention to what the teacher is doing and attuning and receiving this sort of information in the practice. Because very often, you know, you teach a class and the students are kind of in their own world thinking or whatever they're doing until you give them some sort of explicit verbal instruction, you know. Mm -hmm. And we become so accustomed to doing that. And sometimes it's very rote even, right? And and sometimes if the teacher is a little bit more aware, they'll guide the student to pay attention to their experience a little bit more closely as a way of attempting to direct them into more of a mindful, immersed experience in, in, in a learning experience where, versus just like doing this exercise and you'll feel better kind of thing. That's a good point. I mean, mm -hmm. so uh, when you were saying that, I'm thinking about this, the difference between that environment and the environment that I see in a Zendo or in the dojo or in a yoga school in India where before the teacher shows up, everyone is already in the space. Meaning like they've already made their preparations, they took their shoes off, they got everything ready and, and they've like, they've entered into the space of mindfulness. They're either meditating or warming up or they're doing something that already established the vibe, partly so the teacher doesn't have to. Hmm. And that'd be nice, <laughs> right? I mean, as yoga teachers, a shout out to all of our yoga teacher peeps. It's like, imagine if in every class situation, the students set the vibe and the teacher shows up and then adds to it, like how much more traction we could all get oh, as a community, God. right? So again, I just, I think it needs to be reiterated a lot. We just need to be reminded because there aren't a lot of places in our, in our culture where we have contemplative zones, you know? I mean, it's awesome now at San Francisco airport, there's a yoga zone, you know, it's like, it's amazing that it's kind of starting to pop up. But in general, a space that's, that's infused with vibrations, what if collectively we just do that? Whoever shows up in the space first, just set it. And then the next person who shows up after that, like ups it again and ups it again. So by the time the class is full, it's on already. And right. the class is still five minutes from starting. I love that you're saying there, you know, cause Everything that we're saying here is not just to, again, I want to reiterate, it's not to tell people what to do. That's not our intention. We want people to get more benefit from what they're doing. And that's why we're talking about this. Because if we do these things, it adds to the energy. It adds to the vibe. It makes the teacher's jobs easier, which then they can focus on giving you other things and more depth. You know, I mean, depending on the kind of vibe or consciousness in the space, I teach something completely different. You know, there's, I have what, like eight or nine classes I'm teaching right now on a weekly basis and every single class is unique. And I realize the content or the depth of the content often, you know, it's a combination of me and my state of being a body mind, as well as the student, 
And there are certain spaces I walk in and I can feel the level of respect and regard and focus and attentiveness. And the most magical things come through in that space out of my complete toolkit. You know, I notice that over and over and over and over. Mm. So context is so important and students need to take on a little bit more ownership about educating themselves, right? Not right. waiting to be educated and educating themselves and taking the initiative to curate that experience for themselves and other people by what they bring. I mean, so often when we're in the sort of consumerist attitude, it's like, I'm just going to show up, you provide everything and, and serve me. No, 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 no. You take the time and think about where you're going and what you're doing and what you're bringing and bring the best that you can so you can co-create a space together where you can bring amazing energy together. Dude, I mean, so I like that. Just for the listeners, Mark just dropped like a mad secret right there. So if you want to learn how to download everything from the teacher's toolkit, establish the sacred space before the teacher shows up. Get into the space of being a beginner. Get into the space of being open and connected and grateful and connect through the teacher to their teachers and their teachers and their teachers and their teachers and understand with your body that deep in your guts that you're about to get a download from the tradition that's been passed forward from every person who's ever been a teacher Guru Parampara. and boom like mm -hmm. if you can do what mark just you know said then you'll learn things that he probably never even says yeah that's the other oh my god you're, see this is getting super esoteric <laughs> but like it's, but it's so, so it, true. It's so real. I mean, it's what you so said when you true. when you're like your best, most magical classes happen. Yeah. It's like it's palpable when you're a teacher and you stand on that side of the room. Yeah. You feel everything. Everything. Yeah. Everybody's an open book. And if the students have this entitlement energy, I'm telling you, as students, the teacher closes every time. They will give you the least amount possible. The more entitled you are, mm -hmm. the more mm -hmm. humble, grateful, open, connected you are. It's they'll true. give you everything. <laughs> They'll, they won't make they won't make it hard for you. Like a lot of our teachers made it hard for us yeah. because they want us to struggle. They want us to have to develop the muscles of learning how to how to receive transmission. I never do that to my yeah. students. I don't think you do either. It's like no. we want people as quickly as possible to get as much as possible so they can apply it in their life and like and have have positive yeah. results. But but I, again, my my contemplation is on the flip side is that a disservice too sometimes you know to the students. Right. But, but I mean it. You know. I, I, God. <laughs> King's okay, that's knowledge. it. I'm going to be harder on my students. <laughs> watch out. Watch out. No, but King dropped something really important. It is so true because, I mean, I've been on the teaching side for almost 17, 18 years now. It's a long time. It's a lot of students. I've, I've been in a lot of different settings and, and taught in a lot of different situations with different students. And yes, I can feel, especially if I'm teaching a class of regular students and when someone new pops in it's very distinct their consciousness and their energy and i can feel it and i'm always kind of interacting with that on a very subtle level and on a certain level it's literally just physics you know when you have closed energies you just can't penetrate so it, and it affects the whole dynamic of the room right so when there's absolutely no protocol or no respect you know it creates a certain kind of Bottle chaos yeah chaos in the space that makes it difficult to teach really because we're literally bringing in like or transmitting energy and consciousness and plugging into a larger sort of stream of intelligence when we teach i mean god i don't, can't believe i'm talking about this but in this podcast but it's that's what we're experiencing a lot of times and when i'm in when i'm taken care of as a teacher and i feel respected i'm in, I'm in a good place and that's why you want to take care of your teachers too on many levels traditionally they, they recommend that right i'm not saying do that or you have to yeah but like 
teachers in traditional cultures were respected, taken care of, and fed, and clothed, and you know, given the best or whatever. I because... never go to my teacher's house and don't bring a gift of food. Mm -hmm. It does. It's not possible. Right. Right. Just right. <laughs> like yeah, as an yeah. example. Yeah. I yeah. Always would bring food or yeah. tea or something. Yeah. Like I don't have to. I'm also paying them for the lesson, but it's right. just like. Yeah, I mean, teachers have egos. I mean, they like everyone needs to feel like they're in their role and they're ex they're they're cared for. Yeah, I mean, yeah. cared for and and like loved and respected, and then they'll give that back a thousandfold. Right, because they want to. That's why they're doing what they're doing. You right, know, very often at, at at a cost and a sacrifice. So when you bring an offering to the teacher and then you come with openness and respect, it creates this dynamic in the space in between you and the teacher that allows for so much more to come through. And I've literally been in different circumstances where something I had never even learned before, I would even say, or like really thought about before, suddenly formulates itself while I'm teaching and just comes through. And I'm usually, you know, when that happens, it's magical. And I'm like, whoa, what was that? Where did that come from? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, yeah, we're getting pretty esoteric here. <laughs> but this is cool that we're talking about this because there's a whole... I won't say how it's used in the martial arts world because this is a little bit weird, but like there's a whole notion of like connecting through the teacher to all of their teachers mm -hmm. to pull through the teacher information that the teacher might not even have internalized themselves yet, but the student can have access to that. And as it comes to the teacher, the teacher also gets to experience it. Yeah. And so in a way, this is part of why I said teacher-student respect is never vertical. It's right. always horizontal, but it's cosmic. It's not mm -hmm. horizontal linear, it's horizontal quantum. Mm -hmm. So when the student has that kind of respect for the teacher and that deep connection to, to lineage and the wisdom traditions, then both the teacher and the student like go up a notch. Mm -hmm. But if it's not there, then the teacher has less access to that because there's no place for it to go. If it's gonna come through you in class, it has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right? So if the student is open, it's like it sucks from the bigger sphere some kind of wisdom and some kind of information. And I think, I mean, I talk with yoga teachers all the time and it happens to people frequently when they're teaching that they teach things that they never planned to teach or actually didn't know right. before they actually taught it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's connection to lineage. Yeah, totally. And it's freaking awesome when that happens. As a teacher, it feels amazing. And as a student, you get you get like some gems that otherwise you would never get mm -hmm. and it can change everything. Yeah. And that's why people go seeking out these masters because they transmit things that can't be planned and it's juicy as heck. Mm -hmm. You know, and just to bring it full circle though, like not, not to say, not to say that um, you shouldn't have discernment around teachers, right? Like uh, there's a saying like in certain, like I think in certain Buddhist circles, you should, check out a teacher for like seven or 12 years and make sure they have all the necessary requisite characteristics, char characteristics and qualifications and qualities before you study with them. You know, cause if, if, especially if you're learning spiritual things, meditation, all these really deeper practices and whatnot, you want to make sure that teacher is someone you can respect and that has sort of the positive qualities. Cause you're going to take those things on too. You know, right. Yeah. Things. That's a really good point. So have discernment. But then once you find that teacher, you know, open yourself up to receive it and then help curate that space through your own conduct and through your own mind and what you're bringing to the table the best you can. Great. And um, so we're going to do some more about this topic and um, 
it's going to be really fun and really uh, pithy. So what we're going to do in a future episode is pick out five really important pieces um, for yoga teachers and five really important pieces for yoga students. So if you're listening to this talk and you want to join the conversation, you can comment in the comment section. Um, let us know some of the important things that you think um, could be helpful in terms of yoga studio conduct from both the yoga student perspective and or the yoga teacher perspective. And then um, we'll plan a couple of future episodes where we go deeper into some of these topics yeah, as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely cover these topics again and we'll probably bring in other yoga teachers and maybe even the studio owner in the future yeah, to talk fun. about some of these things from different perspectives. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for listening. This is Yoga Uncensored with Kane and Mark. Oh, <laughs> yoga uncensored.